All right, so it's going to be Romans chapter 14. We're going to look at verses 17 and 18 for a sermon I've entitled Kingdom Life. Kingdom Life. I'm going to back up, though. Um, I'm going to back up to verse 14 just to get some context. This is Paul speaking about the issues of food. He said, I, I know and I'm convinced in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but to him who thinks anything is to be unclean, to him it is unclean. For if because of food your brother is hurt, you're no longer walking according to love. Do not destroy with your food him for whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let what is for you a good thing be spoken of as evil. And then our verse today. For the kingdom of God, our kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. For he who in this way serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. David Freyhart is a Canadian lawyer and a YouTube host of the program Viva Fry. Uh, recently he interviewed Jenna Ellis. I don't know if you're familiar with that name or remember, but she was one of the lawyers for Donald Trump in dealing with the election fraud uh, claims. She was also the lawyer who defended John MacArthur when he was fined by the city of Los Angeles for keeping his church open during the COVID lockdowns. Now, Freyhart uh, invited Ellis onto the program to discuss some legal issues related to politics, but uh, he started by asking her what her background was and and how she ended up working for President Trump. And she mentioned that she was raised in a Christian home, but it was not really until she got to college that she began to take her Christian faith seriously. Planning to study law, she began to think about the basis for law. You know, there's a theory about law called positive law, which is taught in almost every legal school in the United States. And the basic idea is that right and wrong are ultimately whatever the government says they are. That law doesn't have a transcendent reality based on something beyond our laws, but it's just posited. Whatever they say is the law. And that troubled her. And so she started thinking in these areas, and eventually she wrote a book back in 2015 entitled The Legal Basis for a Moral Constitution. Now, authors make their rounds to the radio uh, and television programs to promote their book. And after one of these promo interviews that Jenna did, she got a phone call, and she said it had a 202 number. And she thought it was a salesperson, so she just let it go into her voicemail. And when she listened later, the person who left the message said that they were the White House operator and she wanted Jenna Ellis to call back because the president wanted to talk to her. Now, she thought it was a joke, but she decided to call back and they said, no, I'll put you right through to the president. Jenna, how are you doing? I saw you on television. You got that big, beautiful title, constitutional attorney. I love it. It's huge. I want to ask you some questions. He spent an hour talking to her on the phone, asking her questions. And she thought, you know, this is the only time I'm ever going to get an opportunity to talk to the President of the United States, so I'm going to tell him just exactly what I think. So Jenna, what are you doing? When are you coming to Washington? I want you to visit me. About a week later, she walks into the Oval Office to sit down to have a meeting with President Trump, at the end of which he says, Jenna, I think you're a brilliant lawyer, and you're working for me now. Now, that whole YouTube interview was interesting, but what I found even more fascinating was when Jenna described herself as a sincere evangelical. Now, as a secular Jew, David Freehart wasn't sure what she meant by a sincere evangelical. And she answered and said, well, I believe the Bible is the revealed word of God and that it's accurate in all that it teaches and that it's sufficient to answer all the questions of life. Well, evidently that picked his curiosity because he responded by saying this, well, no, evangelical Christians believe in the New Testament, right? Well, actually, we believe in both. Well, if that includes the Old Testament, why don't Christians keep 
the rules of Kesrut, being kosher. I mean, if it's part of their Bible as well. She gave a great answer. This is what she said. As a lawyer, you'll appreciate this. As a Canadian, you have a constitution that's binding on Canada. Now, you're applying for U.S. citizenship, and when you become a citizen, you'll be governed by the rules of the United States. Well, in a similar way, in the Old Testament, God gave the Levitical law specifically to the Jews, not to the Gentiles. But once Jesus came and promised fulfillment of the law, now no one, Jew or Gentile, is bound by the Levitical law. Now we're under the age of grace so that those laws that were given to that culture are no longer applicable, but the moral sovereign truth and law doesn't change. And that's why Jesus said he came to fulfill the law. So we as Christians now uh, <clears throat> don't observe Jewish law, the Levitical law. We observe the moral law that God teaches throughout the scriptures. Now, if the Apostle Paul would have been there to hear Jenna Ellis give that answer, he would have said something like this. Yes, amen, that's exactly what I taught in my epistles of Romans and Galatians. The Mosaic law was given in the Old Covenant to the nation of Israel as a temporary constitution. But as the prophets predicted, someday God would make a new covenant with his people. We Jews and Gentiles who have accepted Jesus as a Messiah are part of that new covenant. And as a result of that, we are no longer bound by the Mosaic law with all of its rituals and rites. Circumcision, keeping Sabbath days, avoiding certain foods, none of that matters now that we're in the kingdom of God, now that it's arrived and where the new covenant has been instituted. But as they say, old habits die hard. And it takes time for people sometimes to adjust their way of thinking to the new reality. And that was certainly true for Jewish people, many Jewish people in Paul's day. Now, Paul had counseled patience and tolerance in the church on the part of those with a stronger faith who understood these things towards their weaker faith brothers. But he also makes clear through this chapter that he agrees with the stronger faith Christians on this issue relating to eating or not eating certain foods. For he reminds us in verse 17 that the kingdom of God is not about eating or drinking, but about righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Now, we looked at this verse in passing as we considered the overall argument of this chapter, but today I want to go back and really think through what Paul's teaching here as it relates to the nature of the Christian faith and our living it out in the kingdom of God. Kingdom life, that's what we want to talk about today, so let's pray and get into the text. Father and God, I pray for grace and mercy. This is what it's all about. When it boils all down, this is what the truth is. So we pray that you'd bless us now, help us understand this so that we can live in your kingdom, the kingdom of your Son, in the way that's pleasing to you. Bless us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I think we can outline the sermon with two headings relating to the kingdom of God. First, you can write down the words, the nature of this kingdom, the nature of this kingdom. And secondly, the focus of this kingdom. The nature of this kingdom and the focus of this kingdom. The nature of this kingdom. Let me, if someone were to ask you, what's the theme of the Bible? What would you say in response? What would you give as an answer? I think that most Christians at least have a basic understanding that the central message of the Bible is God's restoration of the creation to its original design. You see, God created the world and gave man dominion over it so that he would subdue it and fill it with those who bear to the image of God, to the glory of God. But when Adam and Eve, our forefather and foremother, fell in the Garden of Eden, that God image was marred and the dominion over the earth was transferred to Satan. And so the promise that was made in the Garden of Eden at that time was that someday one of the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent, take back dominion, and restore man to his rightful place 
in the creation as God's image bears. Now think about what it says in the book of Hebrews when it reminds us of this. It says, For God did not subject the world to come to angels concerning which we're speaking. But he's testified somewhere, and then he quotes from the Old Testament. What is man that you're mindful of him? Or the son of man that you're concerned about him? Yet you've made him for a little while lower than the angels, just for a little while. You've crowned him with glory and honor. You've appointed him over the works of your hands. You put all things under subjection to his feet. For in subjecting all things, he left nothing subjected that is not subjected to him. Man is destined to rule over God's creation. That's our glorious future. But he goes on to say this, But now we do not see all things subject to man. But what do we see? We see him who was for a little while made lower than the angels, Jesus, because of the suffering of his death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Hebrews 2, 5-9. So the storyline in the Bible that's traced out is God restoring the creation and bringing everything under the dominion of, his, of man through his son Jesus Christ. So I think the Bible scholars are right when they say that the main theme that runs through the entire Bible is the kingdom of God. The idea of the kingdom is hinted at already in Genesis, but later developed more fully in the Old Testament. Remember, the nation of Israel was a theocracy. Now, an aristocracy is where you have an upper-class ruling, kind of like we're moving towards in our country. A democracy is where you have the rule by the masses. A theocracy is a rule by God. And Israel had judges in the beginning, and later kings, as we saw in the story we read earlier, but it was always understood that they were under God's authority, ultimately. And that's why the prophets predicted that, or confronted the kings when they sinned. Because they said, you're not an autocrat. You're under God's authority, and you have no right to do it. It was, in that sense, kind of a constitutional republic, wasn't it? Well, the problem was that this ideal of a righteous nation was uh, displaying God's glory was never realized in Israel. And so the prophets spoke of a future day when God would send his Messiah who would rule in righteousness, not only over the land of Israel, but listen carefully, over the entire earth. Isaiah 9 speaks of this future day when it says this, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will rest upon his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of his peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish it. Do you remember King Nebuchadnezzar's dream? Where he had that giant statue made out of various materials? Head of gold, chest of silver, belly of bronze, legs of iron, feet of iron and clay. Now in his dream, there's a stone that's cut out from a mountain, a rock. And this rock comes hurling down and hits the statue on the feet and we're told that the whole Colossus comes crashing down. Now, Daniel told the king that these various materials in the statue represent empires yet to come. But he said, in the last days, in the days of those kings, those ten kings, it says the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will not be destroyed, a kingdom which will not be left to another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it itself will endure forever. So the Jews expected a Messiah who was going to be a political leader, who would come and destroy Israel's enemies and then rule as, his, as their king. But not only would he rule as king over Israel, but over the whole world. As Daniel 7, after God deals with this world emperor, it says this. It says, then, this last 
the Antichrist, then the sovereignty and dominion and greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions will serve and obey him. The people of the saints of the Most High, that's us, the resurrected saints. So when Jesus came along and started preaching, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand, his Jewish listeners thought in terms of this geopolitical kingdom to be established on earth. Messiah is here, now the Romans are going to get what they have coming to them, and Israel is going to be exalted among all the nations. But then Jesus started telling these strange parables about the kingdom of God. Things like, well, the kingdom of God is like a treasure in a field that a man found. And then he rehid it and he went out and sold everything he had so he could buy that treasure or buy that field. The kingdom of God is like a, a man who plants a, a mustard seed. It's a tiny little seed, and yet it grows and grows and becomes a tree that the birds can nest in. Or the kingdom of God is like a man who plants some seed, and as he does, he's, he goes to bed, he gets up, he casts it on the soil, and then it sprouts by itself, and he himself does not know how. And then when the crop permits, immediately he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. <laughs> where's, where's the smashing of the statue? Where's the destruction of Israel's enemies? I mean, I thought the Messiah was going to rule with a rod of iron. I mean, if Jesus is the Messiah and the kingdom of God has come, what's all this talk about lost coins and prodigal sons and lost sheep? Do you remember when John the Baptist, when he heard, he was in prison? He said, send word to him and ask him, are you the one we're expecting or should we be looking for someone else? Jesus was the Messiah and the kingdom had come, but the mystery of the kingdom, which Jesus first revealed, was this. Listen carefully. Before the kingdom comes in power at the end of the age, it's going to come in another form, slowly, quietly, almost imperceptibly, and it will spread through the preaching of the gospel from one heart to the next. Theologians speak of what they term the already not yet nature of the kingdom. It's a spiritual kingdom now, but when Christ comes, it will also be a geopolitical reality established upon the earth. There's those two phases. The initial phase is it's inaugurated, and the final phase is it's consummated. And that's why Jesus could say things to the Pharisees like he does in Luke 17.20, when he says the kingdom, of, uh, kingdom is not coming with signs to be observed. But then just a few chapters later, when he's talking to his disciples, he gives a whole list of dramatic earth-shaking signs that will precede his return. And then he says this in Luke 21, 31. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that the kingdom of God is near. So as Christians, because of the new covenant, we've already entered the kingdom even now. For as it says in Colossians 1, 13 to 14, for he, meaning God, Christ, rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. So we as Christians are looking forward to the time that Jesus returns, we're resurrected to reign with him in that kingdom and then it'll be established on all the earth. And that's why when we're praying, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, we're praying that God would bring in that kingdom. So we're in the kingdom of God even now and as citizens of this kingdom, it's important that we understand what the focus of the kingdom is actually supposed to be. And that brings us to our second point, the focus of the kingdom. Now, everything I've said, in a sense, up to this point serves as a backdrop to help us grasp what Paul's saying in verse 17. Two things Paul tells us about the kingdom in the text. First, he tells us what it is not, what it doesn't consist of. And secondly, he tells us what it does consist of. What's the focus of the kingdom? So he starts by saying, for the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking. Now in the context, keep in mind the context, the Roman Christians 
were, you know, their focus on the kingdom, they were, they were thinking that we still have to keep those same old Mosaic laws. But Paul's telling us, that, no, it's not about eating certain foods or not eating certain foods. It's not about whether you drink alcohol or not drink alcohol. It's not whether you want to observe a Sabbath day or don't want to observe a Sabbath day. Those things are okay if you want to do them, but that's not what matters. What he's saying is this. It's not about the rituals and the externals. Now, I want you to stop and think for a second. How many churches have you been in? How many denominations are there where it really is only about the rituals? You go, you sit, they do a certain right ritual response, week in, week out, Always the same. People are staring, looking at all different, because the only thing that matters is, did you do the rituals? Now, I have to say this, though. In the Old Testament, there were a lot of commands dealing with rituals, weren't there? Read through the book of Leviticus. See how carefully they lay out the requirements of the priests who are supposed to follow them with regard to the sacrifice. The priests had to wear special clothes, wash themselves in a certain way, sacrifice animals according to exact regulations. You remember the time when Aaron's two sons thought, well, we'll innovate, we'll do something different. God struck them dead on the spot. Now, even if they were punctilious in doing all the ritual, though, if the heart hadn't changed, God still held them guilty. It was supposed to be, even back then, about living a life of honoring God and keeping his moral commandments. God rejected his people when he didn't. Speaking to the people in Isaiah's day, he said this in Isaiah 1, 10 to 17. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give heed to instruction, you people of Gomorrah. And then God attacks their ritual. He says, what are your multiplied sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I've had enough of your burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle. I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls or lambs or goats. By the way, he's talking about the sacrificial system which he instituted. When you come before me, who requires you this trampling of my courts? Bring your worthless offerings no longer. Incense is an abomination to me. New moons and Sabbath and calling of assemblies. I can't endure the iniquity of the solemn assembly. I hate your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts. They've become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. So when you spread out your hands in prayer, I'll hide my face from you. Yes, even though you multiply your prayers. By the way, pray again and again and again and again. Same words again and again. Jesus had something to say about that, thinking you'd be heard for your many words. He said, I will not listen. Your hands are covered with blood. Wash yourself and make yourself clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from my sight. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Reprove the widow or the um, ruthless. Defend the orphan and plead for the widow. Now, the real danger in religion, and this is all the time, is to substitute ritual for repentance. To go through the motions without ever really engaging the heart nor determination to change your life. Jesus complained in his day. He said, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In the old covenant, there was a lot of ritual and rites. But in the new covenant, there's a shift away from the externals and an emphasis on the heart of religion, which is the desires of the heart. In, in the passage in Ezekiel, where God promises that he will bring a new covenant, he says this, I will give you a new heart and, a new, and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and to be careful to keep my laws. Ezekiel 36, 26 to 27. Remember when Jesus got into the discussion with that woman at the well in Samaria? When Jesus started talking about her sins, she uh, wanted to shift the topic to something that was more general and a lot less specific, like uh, something, you know, that's historical. So we read this. She said, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. You know, our fathers worshipped in this mountain. She was a Samaritan. 
and your people say that we're to worship in Jerusalem. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. What he's saying is it's not going to matter where you worship. What matters is what's in the heart and whether you're genuinely impressed with God and worshiping him. Once the new covenant was instituted and Christ's kingdom had come, it doesn't matter where you worship. So we don't have holy lands. We don't visit shrines. So you can touch a piece of wood that supposedly was part of the true cross. You're no better off by being baptized in the Jordan River than if you're baptized down in the St. Croix. We don't burn incense or sprinkle holy water. And as a pastor, I don't wear special clothes and go through prescribed motions. By the way, doesn't that sound so much more holy? And then what are they doing in the back room with the kids in this church? No, instead, I bring you God's blessing by teaching you God's word week in and week out. The kingdom of God is not about special days or special diets. It isn't about rites and rituals. It's not about burning incense and ringing bells. Rather, it's about manifesting the work of God in our lives, in our relationship with him, and our relationship to others. That's what the kingdom of God is about. Well, where's the focus? He says it's to be on righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Now, many commentators think that when Paul mentions righteousness here, he has in mind the righteousness of Christ that God imputes to us. And you understand that, don't you? That you're going to stand before God on judgment day. Every sin of yours is going to be laid out before him. And you have to have at that point a perfect righteousness. Righteousness means conformity to the law of God. You have to have a perfect righteousness. Do you see a problem with that? The problem is, is that none of us have it. The only person who's ever been perfectly righteous was Jesus. So you need to have him credit that to your account the moment you believe in him. If you stand before God without that, you perish. And so a lot of commentators say, well, that's what it's talking about here. I think that's the basis of it. But Paul expands on righteousness more than just the imputed part of God's righteousness to us. It's not that just that God imputes righteousness to us, but then after we're saved, he starts to develop righteousness in us. And ultimately, as a church, as we act righteous, he manifests righteousness through us. And so the starting point is, for acceptance with God, is Christ's righteousness credited to our account. But then afterwards, it's developed in us, and that's what we call sanctification. And the growing in this Christ-like character, do you remember what Jesus said? He said, seek first the kingdom of God and all its righteousness. And then all these things will be added onto you. So pursuing righteousness is what the kingdom is all about. So if you're a believer, you're, if you're a believer, you're to be seeking to get all sin out of your life. And I have to say in my own life, and in, as I've watched people over the years, I think one of the great dangers is what we want to do is manage sin so it doesn't get too out of line, but not eliminate sin so that it's not there anymore. We should be striving by God's grace to live holy, God-honoring lives. Now Paul connects the new covenant with the work of the Holy Spirit producing practical righteousness in the life of the believer, contrasting his ministry with that of Moses in the old covenant. He said this in 2 Corinthians 2, 2-11. Now you, he's writing to the Corinthians, you are a letter written in our hearts, known and read by all men, being manifested that you're a letter of Christ, cared for by us, 
written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on table, uh, tablets of stone, but on human hearts. In other words, God's writing the law not, not on stone tablets anymore, but on the hearts of his people so that they actually want to obey. Such confidence we have through Christ towards God. Not that we're adequate in ourselves or consider anything coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God, who made us adequate as servants of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. But if this ministry of death in the letters of stone came with glory, because remember, when they gave him the law, and what happened when they gave him the law? They were breaking the law at the very time they gave it to him, and 3,000 died, right? But you know what happened? When the spirits poured out on Pentecost, how many got saved? 3,000. Because the law minus the spirit brings condemnation. So he talks about what, this, what it brought. It says, but if the ministry of death and the letters engraved in stone came with glory so that the sons of Israel could not look intently at the face of Moses because of the glory of his face fading as it was, how will not the ministry of the Spirit fail to be even more glorious? For if the ministry of condemnation has glory, much more the ministry of righteousness abounds in glory. For indeed, what had glory in the case before has no glory in comparison to that which surpasses it. For if that which fades away was with glory, how much more that which remains. In other words, if the old covenant with its condemnation was still glorious because it showed God's justice, how much more the new covenant, which actually transforms lives and shows God's grace and mercy. And that's what righteousness is. It's conformity to God's law in your life through the power of the Spirit. He goes on to say, but it's also peace. Peace. Romans 5, 1-2 says this, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we also obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we now stand, and we exult in the hope of the glory of God. Once a person trusts in Christ, the war between God and that person is over. Not only do we have peace with God, but as Christians we experience peace, the peace of God. Even in the midst of trying situations, we can be calm. And remember the words of Scripture would say this, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And as Christians, we're to seek to live with, with, uh, in peace with everybody else. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, for those are the ones who shall be called the sons of God. Hebrews 12, 14 says this, pursue peace with all men. Part of the problem in Rome was the, the people were treating each other in a disrespectful way, and in that way they were not leading to peace and harmony. At that point, they were failing to live out the kingdom life that God called us to. You know, I remember uh, one time when I was working at the dairy there, I got an evaluation, and uh, I actually had this written on it twice by two different bosses, so maybe it was good. And one of the things it said is, Doug gets along with everybody. So some of my coworkers, they told me they had written on theirs, has difficulty getting along with coworkers. <laughs> now, if you're a believer, shouldn't there be a difference between you and a non-believer when it comes to getting along with your coworkers? You have the spirit who's moving in your heart, directing you towards peace. You're dealing with family squabbles. Shouldn't you, as a Christian, be the one who demonstrates less selfishness than your non-Christian siblings? Joy. That's one of the fruits of the Spirit. C.S. Lewis said that joy is the secret weapon of the Christian. 
Everybody seeks happiness, but Christians have joy. Happiness depends on what's happening in your life. Joy is experienced by Christians, whatever is happening in our lives. Happiness comes from the outside. Joy is generated from the inside and flows outward. It's internally generated by the Holy Spirit. Jesus stood and cried and said, If anyone's thirsty, let him come to me to drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture says, from his innermost beings will flow rivers of living water. He spoke this of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for the Spirit had not yet been given, because he was not yet glorified. It's bubbling, it's bubbling, it's bubbling in my soul. What's the idea? That the joy actually flows from the inside out. You know, a sad thing. Your grandfather, the artesian well, that's been supplying some of you people with some fine water for quite a while. It dried up? That's sad. You know what an artesian well is? It just, right? Now, there's some suspicion the DNR is behind this. I have no idea. I want to make no reference to that. But what Jesus is saying is you'll have an artesian well produced by the Holy Spirit inside of you of joy that's just going to overflow. And think about it. Every person wants to be happy. 100% of the people want to be happy, and 95% of them fail to achieve it. Could it be because we're going about it the wrong way? Well, Jesus said this. He said, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and your joy would be full. John 15, 11. Loving God, loving others, all as an overflow of our joy in Jesus produced by the Holy Spirit who indwells every believer. Do you see why this has little or nothing to do with eating or not eating certain foods or keeping or not keeping certain days? It's not about rituals. It's about relationships. Our love for God and our love for others. Loving God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and our neighbor as ourselves. Remember Jesus said, if you keep these two, you've kept all the commandments. That's what it's about. And Paul goes on to say, for he who serves Christ in this way is acceptable to God and will even be approved by others. And what he means by that is even your non-Christian friends, if you live this way, they're like, yeah, I don't know what's all in him and whatnot, but he, he's a good guy. He's a good guy. You know, Jenna Ellis, the lawyer, was all smiles when she told David uh, Freybait about, uh, you know, how she came to work for President Trump. But what she really got excited about was when he asked her this question, he said, you know, we should really sit down and talk about this. She understood that it really was not about what you eat or what you drink, but that the new covenant was about righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit, and she wanted him to share that joy as well. May God get, grant that this remains our focus all the time. Let's pray. Our Father in God, we thank you. This is not complicated. We don't have to worry about detailed rituals and rites and all of that kind of stuff. And there is some of that in the Christian faith, Lord, but it's, that's not what it's about. It's about you and loving you and loving other people and finding the joy that is provided because Jesus has been the propitiation for our sins and reconciled us to you. So, Father, we pray that you would help us to do that. And in the context of all this, Lord, it was talking about the way uh, these people in the Roman church were treating each other. So, Lord, we want our love to overflow from our joy in Jesus, but we want to be loving and gracious and kind and a blessing to others in church. So bless us to that end, we ask in Christ's name. Amen.